Our reading today comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we'll be reading verses 17 through 34. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another goes drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Amy. Well, it's my uh, great privilege to introduce our speaker for this morning, which is Christian Park. And as we do so, we just sang the words, Be Thou My Vision. And if you were to think about what God's vision for the world is, one of the ways to think of it is that it's really other-centered love. And so for the next number of weeks, we're going to be studying what we call a more excellent way, which is how Paul ends chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians. Uh, so we'll be thinking about what is the more excellent way that God has called the church to, to live by. Come on up, Christian. Christian um, has been one of our leaders in Pilsen. He's married to he and uh, is the father of Noah, and they're on, in the process of adopting another son as well, and uh, he is the Director of Intentional Christian Communities. Christian, will you come and open God's Word to us today? Thank you, John. Um, I just want to reiterate, uh, the last for the last five to six months, it, it, it's been home uh, for the Pilsen congregation that, that uh, shut down in, in about uh, February or March. So we're so thankful for opening your doors to us and making us feel welcome. I think it's been uh, rejuvenating and, and refreshing and, and really life-giving for a, a lot of the Pilsen folk who are here. So I, I want to say thank you for that. Um, you know, some things 
that we do comes second nature to us. The culture that we were born in kind of drives these things as second nature. Let me first explain that I was born in between two cultures. If you can imagine a Korean kid born to immigrant parents in the city of Wheaton or Glen Ellen. Those of you who know Wheaton and Glen Ellen know that I would stick out like a sore thumb. I could probably count on one hand how many Asian kids or friends I had growing up through school. But my mother did a fantastic job in introducing culture to us. One night, we would have a casserole. I mean, what's more American than a casserole, right? <laughs> and then the next evening, we would have this spicy, fermented cabbage stew. You know, in English, it does not sound appetizing. But, you know, it's called kimchi jjigae, you know, which is very refreshing and, and homey. Um, but eating different foods was very second nature to me. But another thing that was second nature is how I dealt with shoes. When I went home, I never had shoes on. You know, a little public service announcement. I know there's enough Asians here, so uh, when you enter into an Asian's home, please take off your shoes. <laughs> you know, and then the one time when I was growing up, I, I went to my non-Asian friend's home, and I, like I always did, I take, took off my shoes, and he's like, no, wait, wait, wait. You don't have to take off your shoes. And in shock and in complete exhilaration, for the next two hours, I played inside with my shoes on. Shoes on. And then I went home and took off my shoes. Well, in today's passage, Paul addresses the Corinthian church at something that came probably as second nature to them. But this was not good. The church has been in existence for maybe a few years by now, and Paul, like a good parent, was correcting them in something that they did, possibly a second nature, but not good. So with that, let's pray together. Father, we, we pray together that we would learn your ways of the gospel, and Lord, that we would see your heart as we open up your word through this passage. Lord, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. For those of you who are visiting for the first time, we're going through the book of 1 Corinthians. And we turned a corner last week, and we are now looking at corporate worship or when the church gathers together. Last week, we looked at how gender is a window in which we can see the glory of God. How can our gender differences bring glory to God in worshiping? together. Well, this week, we see the second issue in gathering for worship, and this is the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Candidly, what they were doing was wrong, and this passage is a corrective to the Corinthian church to point them in the right direction. Paul dug into their hearts. He examined their hearts on what their actions said about who can join them at the Lord's Supper where the whole church comes together. Today's passage answers this question, who can come to the Lord's Supper? Who can come to the Lord's Supper? And the passage gives us three ways that we can understand to get to that answer. 
First, we have to recognize our tendencies in verses 17 through 22. Second, we need to remember what the Lord has done in verses 23 through 27, which begs a response to repeat or recommit to unity in verses 28 through 34. My apologies for all the alliteration, but it just works here. You know, parts of today's passage are very familiar to us. It's part of the Lord's Supper that we celebrate once a month, and passages, this passage is read quite often on Communion Sundays. But what might be a little unfamiliar is the context that this kind of resides in, and it's nestled in this story. There were divisions in the church. There was discrimination that was going on in the church. And this was seen at the table of the Lord's Supper, where everyone should gather. When we think of discrimination, most of us immediately think of race. We think about white, black, brown people. It's a highly charged topic, but I want to address a specific type of discrimination that they were guilty of, discrimination on the socioeconomic status. And if we were honest with ourselves, we're probably all a little bit guilty of that. I actually believe that the socioeconomic discrimination is connected to most, if not all, of the discrimination that invades our world today. It's between the haves and the have-nots. The American Psychological Association, a a peer-reviewed journal, says this, the relationship between socioeconomic status, race, and ethnicity is intimately intertwined. Research shows that race and ethnicity, in terms of stratification, often determine a person's socioeconomic status. Furthermore, communities are often segregated by socioeconomic status, race, and ethnicity. These communities commonly share characteristics, low economic development, poor health conditions, and low levels of educational attainment. Low socioeconomic status has consistently been implicated as a risk factor for many of these problems that plague communities. Under the umbrella of socioeconomic discrimination, falls pretty much everything else. The message to the church is this. Do not discriminate against those who are more different than you when you come together for the Lord's Supper. Put positively, the Lord's Supper is for all who proclaim the Lord's death, which answers the question, who can come to the Lord's Supper in the beginning? The Lord's Supper is, all, is for all who proclaim the Lord's death. And that is the, the theme of today's passage. To those of you who are here for the first time or unfamiliar with Christianity or unsure if this is something for you, today's passage should give you a clearer picture of what the church should look like. And I want to personally apologize if you have ever seen a church discriminating against each other or there are divisions in the church or if even you felt discriminated or or divided or, or pushed out in this church. The picture here is what the church should look like. Yes, Christ came to restore our spiritual lives, but there's also a physical aspect that should be seen as we gather as a church. 
To give you a little context, Corinth was situated on prime land because of its access to water, trade routes, and their position was prime for uh, military defense. All great ingredients for this economic boom. People from the Roman Empire populated this area with their culture and thus intertwining with the Corinthians, and it kind of seeped its way into the church. As money flowed in, naturally subgroups formed, and that we have the haves and the have-nots. We have the privileged and the underprivileged. We have the, the rich and the poor. And then in these communities, in these gatherings, meals would usually take place at the wealthier homes because they were larger. In these homes, there would be this courtyard or atrium that kind of situated uh, maybe 30 to 50 guests. And then if you walk further into the home, there is this little dining room that, that people can gather. And usually, the wealthy, they went into that dining room. At these gatherings or meals, in this context, in this situation, the Lord's Supper was served. So that's the context we're in right now. Remember, in the previous section that Sully just preached last week, Paul just commended the Corinthians for keeping the apostolic teachings and the teachings of Jesus. And as Sully put it, it was a sliver of hope in, or a sliver of encouragement in a river of correction. Well, now we're jumping back right into that river. And this passage begins in stark contract, contrast to last week. Verse 17, if we want to look at that together. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Which brings us to our first point that we need to understand. If we believe that the sword's left, if the Lord's Supper is for all who proclaim the Lord's death. The first point is that we need to recognize, we need to recognize our harmful tendencies. The disappointment is clear. This section opens and closes with a reproach or a rebuke, I do not commend you, and ends in the rhetorical question that Paul actually answers. He usually doesn't answer his rhetorical question. But what, what shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. What the church is doing is not good because Paul said that they have gathered for the worse. And moving on to verse 18 to, to kind of see, give us a picture of what the worse was and why they would receive such harsh, harsh words. In verses 18 and 19, it says this, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Paul heard that the Corinthians were creating divisions among themselves. At first glance, this may sound like a disapproval to the Corinthian church, but it is mixed in with some truth. When Christ returns, there will be a clear distinction between those who live for Christ and those who don't live for Christ, for there must be factions among you. The problem here was that the Corinthian church was doing what is ultimately up to God 
by separating themselves in class, by their classes. They did what was up to God. God will separate the ungodly and the godly when the time comes. And this will create division. But for the church to do this, for the church to take part in this is wrong. A finite being, us, should not do the job of an infinite God. This cause for division is not good. As an illustration, let's say next week we want to change things up and say, okay, everyone who's read their Bible every day of the week, you guys sit in the first two rows. And everyone else, you guys sit in the back. This is ludicrous. We would never do that. And if you go into a church like that, I would say kind of turn around and walk out. But, you know, it's like this kind of separation that was so obvious. But the church naturally divided themselves in what seemed second nature to them. They just kept doing what the culture did, what many's culture, what many cultures do, what we sometimes do. The rich stayed with the rich, and the working class and the poor, they stayed together. Paul's observation was, this is not good. Compare this passage with Acts 2. It's very different. This is far, far away from this church communing together, fellowshipping, fellowshipping together, sharing everything that they had in common together. This was far off. Verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. You see, the Lord's Supper was an observation of the Passover meal. Most likely, these meals were more than what we're familiar with when we celebrate the Lord's Supper once a month. This was a full meal, and the bread usually was served in the beginning of the meal, and the cup was usually at the end of the meal. More importantly, these meals were done together as a church. What the Corinthians thought was that they were coming together for the Lord's Supper, but the response was, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. It looked nothing like it. Individuals got their own food and ate it with no awareness of people around them, or they only shared it with the people in close proximity with them. They shared it with those in the dining room while the people in the atrium or the courtyard didn't have much. The wealthy and the well-to-do brought their extravagant meals, and the poor or working class, they either didn't have much money or they came from working their daily jobs and they just rushed to come to this, this gathering for the Lord's Supper. This doesn't sound like a family meal because people were feeling left out, ashamed, and low class. One goes hungry, and another gets drunk. If you think about this, Paul is just emphasizing the two extremes. If you're hungry, what do you want? You want your basic sustenance. You want your, your bellies filled so you won't feel hungry anymore, those who go hungry. And those who get drunk, you think about the person who gets drunk, they have everything they could possibly want. They have all their food, they're full, and now getting drunk, it's really not necessary. 
but it's their extravagance that they live in. Paul's showing this huge contrast. Imagine a person parched from a full day's work, had all of his last drop of water earlier in the day, and he comes to gather at this one meal, and then there's this, this brother or sister sitting next to him, showing off his new bottle of water from the Alaskan glaciers that he spent so much money on. And then he swigs down this water, swishes his mouth, and spits it out. And this person next to him is just parched, just wanting a drip of water. You see how ridiculous that situation looks. And this is kind of what was happening. Continuing on in verse 22. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise a church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. The section ends with an exclamation and a series of rhetorical questions. Paul painted a picture that justified reproach. Do not do what you're doing at the house of the Lord. If you're hungry, go to your own home and eat. If you want sustenance, if you want to drink, go home and have a drink. But do not use the Lord's Supper for division in the house of God. Do not despise the house of God in this way. I will not commend you. The Lord's Supper is not meant for you individually, but for the remembrance of the Lord together. And we celebrate that together with everyone A well-known commentator says this, the wealthy still have their own houses in which to eat their private meals. What he will not let them do, being Paul, is to bring such distinctions to the common meal of believers where Christ had made them all one by carrying over into these meals a number of privileged status aspects of both private and religious meals. The rich were in effect destroying the church as one body in Christ. For Paul, the net result was to destroy the gospel itself. Hence, these especially strong words in behalf of the poor, which at the same time have served later generations in behalf of a proper understanding of the Lord's Supper. They came together, and in that way, they were destroying the church as a body of Christ. Eat your own food at home, but when you gather, don't discriminate. In our westernized culture teaches us to be number one. Our, church, our, our culture tells us to do everything in our own power to excel in our status, our well-being, our wealth, our enjoyment, even our politics. Our feelings come ahead of everything else. Everything revolves around me. We are a culture of Facebook We're a culture of Instagram. We're a culture of Snapchat. We're a culture of one-upping one another in the pictures that we display and in our experiences. In this online world where we're so self-absorbed in me, nobody cares about the other person. Other people's feelings? Huh, I don't care. We are a culture of self-indulgent. This is exactly what Paul is preaching against. Don't bring that into the church. But instead, look around. Look to the person who has nothing. 
Look to the person who has less than you. Look to the brother or sister who's starving, who's hungry, who's thirsty. Be the church to them. So who can come to the Lord's Supper? The Lord's Supper is for all who proclaim the Lord's death. And once we recognize our harmful tendencies, we need to remember what the Lord has done to understand the Lord's Supper. And we're going to look at 23 through 32 to remember what the Lord has done. The centerpiece of this whole gathering is the why. Remember. Remember why we gather. Paul reminded them of the Lord's Supper. Remember what the Lord has done for you. Verse 23, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Paul passed on to them the church's ongoing tradition since Jesus had his last supper with his disciples. This account follows closely to Luke 22, So this wasn't the first time that the church heard of this, or it wasn't the first time that they they took part together in the Lord's Supper. What they did, though, deserved correction. Remember, this signifies the Lord's body given over to death on behalf of those eating at his table. Jesus broke bread for you, all those at the table. He bore the sins of many, as we recall from Isaiah 53, 12. Do this in remembrance of me. In verse 25, in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Paul took the cup after supper as a new covenant, signifying Jesus' blood, echoing the words of Exodus 24.8, sealing the covenant with the blood over the people. And Jeremiah 31.31, 31, looking forward to the new covenant, ratifying the significance of the cup. Do this as often as you drink it, implying a repeated action for believers in remembrance of me. Paul added in remembrance of me to highlight the need for the Corinthians to remember. If I haven't said it enough, Remember. And remember here isn't just a cognitive word, but is a a word that carries participatory action like a memorial. Remember the Lord's life and death for you. Remember how your old way of life has died on the cross of Jesus Christ with him. Remember that he did this for you while you were still a sinner. He didn't take account of how much you had what you wore, how much money you had in the bank account. He looked at you and forgave you. Remember that. Verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Do this often. What does the Lord's death signify? Death to sin. Christ conquered it for us, for our our salvation and the seal of the covenant between God and his people. This is to be celebrated for all who are in the family of God, for all who proclaim Christ as their Savior. But why proclaim the Lord's death until he comes? Christ's death, as we know, wasn't the end. Christ's life and resurrection is more complete 
Even more, Christ is returning for the church in the end times. Why stop at these words of death or this thought of death? I believe that it's to remind the Corinthian church that the bread that they eat and the cup that they drink was for their freedom, for their existence as a church. It cost something. It cost someone. It cost the life of an innocent man. Jesus Christ died so that all who believe in him can have life. He did this for all. The church in Corinth cannot choose who they favor. We were reminded in Ephesians 2, 14 through 16, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God and one body through the cross, therefore killing the hostility. This signifies the new covenant to the family of God. This new covenant does not discriminate. This is a Jew and the Gentile alike for the rich, the poor, all ethnicities. I'm going to take you down memory lane for a little bit. Remember the last time that you sinned. Remember the last time that you cursed at someone who cut you off on the road. Remember the last time you looked at something that you shouldn't be looking at. Remember the last time that you lied. Remember the last time you cheated. Or even the last time you purposely looked away at a homeless man on the street, pretending you didn't see him. Do you remember the last time you disciplined your children out of anger? Do you remember the last time you gossiped? Now remember that Jesus Christ died for all of that. He did this for you. Now that we recognize our wrongs, remember what the Lord has done. There can only be two responses. We can repeat our wrongs or recommit to another. First, this is what happens if we repeat. Verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. There's an old saying, those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Paul is responding to his disapproval and explicitly tells him of the consequences. The divisions that they have set up between the rich and the poor is the unworthy manner that will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Just like they cannot call the shots of how they can be divided between the spiritual and unspiritual, they cannot discriminate and treat the poor poorly or hinder anyone who comes to the table. They cannot throw shade at somebody and then all of a sudden, here, take the body and blood of Jesus Christ. That's just wrong. What happens if you ignore or purposely eat the bread or drink of the cup in an unworthy manner? You will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. You will, be, you will despise the Lord's Supper. You will proclaim yourself guilty. 
Verse 28, let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. This is for the gathering of the body. If you are not discerning of who is or who is not around you, you are guilty. We are one body. If you exclude fellow believers because of their socioeconomic status or any other status, you are despising the church, the Lord's Supper, and you drink judgment on yourself. And then we go to a verse like 30, and it's a bit alarming. You know, there are a couple of different views to this. Uh, there's first thoughts of the ill and, and the weak are spiritual illness and spiritual weakness and spiritual death. And other people believe that, that this, this is what happens if you don't feed the, the hungry or poor, they will get sick and, and die. Or if you overindulge in your drink, then you will get sick and die. But I believe that we need to take this at face value. At the time here, as reported to Paul, because of what they did at the Lord's Supper, some fell ill, some were weak, and some have died. There are great consequences to despising the Lord's Supper. Verse 31, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. If we are to recognize and remember, we will not repeat the wrong motives that we had at the Lord's Supper. But if we recognize and remember, let's think about others. We could repeat our wrongs or respond to commit to one another. Verse 33, so then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for the judgment about the other things I will give directions when I come. This section comes to an end, concluding the problem in the first part of the passage. He called the Corinthians to recommit to why they gather for the Lord's Supper. Wait for one another. Be inclusive to other brothers and sisters that may be different than you. In this case, the poor, which encompassed the Jew and the Gentile. The church isn't just gathering for ourselves. It's not just for our social interaction. It's not to get full or our bellies full at the next event. The church and the gathering for the Lord's Supper is for the remembrance of the body of Christ. It's for others. The church is for others. Christ died for you and me. When we come together, we need to be aware of the other person. We need to think of one another. When Christ died, he thought of the lost. He thought of the sinner. He had the world's sins upon his shoulder, and he suffered on the cross. He did this for you and me. He did this for all the people who are in this room. He did it for all the people riding the L. Christ came to save the sinner, and he had you specifically in mind. And now, Christ waits to come again. Christ, in his great patience, is waiting for more to come to the table. 
He is waiting for more to come to him. He waited for you. He waited for you to declare him as your Lord and Savior. He wants us to remember that. As people who proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, may it be second nature to us to be united as a body, breaking the walls of hostility, breaking the walls of racial separation, socioeconomic differences, may it break the walls of our gender differences and how we treat men and women in a congregation, and let's celebrate. The supper is to celebrate together, giving him the glory, giving him the glory of coming together. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you so much uh, for this time that we we look at your word, and Father, the challenge to us, oh God, that, that we look at the sin in our own hearts and that, that we would really recommit to one another as we look at the body that is so broken and, and the Corinthian church, Father. I pray that we would look at one another and function as a body of Christ. So when other people see the church, they will see a body united, and that is attractive. So Lord, we pray that we would take the corrective that, that Paul gave us today. Lord, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.